Amen. You may be seated and welcome. It's great to see you this morning. And uh, for you that are fathers, I just want to welcome you. Um, today is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. You know, we know something. I know a couple things about Father's Day. Uh, having lost my father a couple years ago, you know, it's a, it's a day that can be painful for some people. Have, some of you maybe have, have lost a spouse or, or maybe you've had a father that wasn't a loving father. But, you know, one of the things that Scripture reminds us of is that our God is a gracious, loving, caring father. Amen. And as we, as we sing about, he is faithful even when we're not. And so wherever you are on the spectrum, just pray that you would look to the one true God, the one who, who loves you so much that he sent his son to die and to be raised uh, uh, so you could have eternal life. Well, I'm going to ask you to find your way to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, as we continue in our series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, I told a, a dad joke in the first, first hour, so I won't tell it again. I, I, I told everybody that it won't be long now, and that's what, that's what they said when the monkey had his tail cut off. And I, I use that to say, we're almost done with the Ten Commandments, but I, I won't use that because it's a pretty bad joke. Um, I've been a news junkie pretty much all my life. I remember in high school, I would read everything I could. I, I, I watched the news all the time. When I got to college, I got the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal. I got Time Magazine, which wasn't so bad back then. Sports Illustrated that um, I just read that for fun. And... and um, yeah, you know, my dad always used to say, Bill, don't believe everything you read. And I'm sure some of you have heard that and some of you have said that. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm sure that's probably true. And, but then I, I lived it. One summer I was home from college and I was working construction, which I did every, every summer. And our, our, our company had been contracted to completely gut a 10-story building. And they were going to completely redo it. And so we started up on the 10th floor and we, we basically tore down all, everything that wasn't, you know, wasn't concrete. And we, we would dump it into the elevator shafts. And we had a crew that would take it out of the elevator shafts and put it in dumpsters. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was a hot and it was a humid and it was a long, hard summer while we were doing that. And I remember that we finally got to the bottom floor and a couple of us got into the bottom of the elevator shafts. You know, the floor might be up here, but... The elevator shaft would drop maybe another six, seven feet down below, and we were pulling all that stuff out of there. And we're down in there. We got rubber gloves on. We got masks on and, and helmets, and it was just it was, it was terrible. And there's water in there. And, you know, you're pulling pulling drywall, and you're pulling um, you're pulling two by fours. And all of a sudden, I grabbed something that just felt really weird. And I had these rubber gloves on. And it was in the water, and just my hand was slipping on it a little bit. And I pulled it up, and I pulled a leg bone up, and I'm looking at it. And I'm probably 19 or 20 years old. And the other guy with me in the pit, his name is Tom. And I said, Tom, you know, I, I kind of did this because I was like, I didn't want to keep holding it. I said, I just found a bone. He goes, what? I said, I know I just found a human bone. He, he looked at me, his eyes, you know, through, through, his, through his mask and his helmet. I mean, we wore masks before masks was cool. And, and, uh, and, and, and he goes, okay, they're not cool. Um, but, but we wore them because of our health. But what happened is is he looked at me, he goes, let's get out of here. And so we got out of there and we called the office and they said, you know, stay out of it, you know, wait, wait till the, you know, wait till the police come. And so it was, it was about 11, 11, 15, and I'm never one to miss a meal. So I'm, I'm going to go get 
lunch for the guys. And so I go, and I, I go to a fast food restaurant, and I come back, and, you know, I'm, I'm, and all of a sudden, I, I pull back into the job site, and all three of the television stations are there. And, and, and Tom points to me getting out of the truck, and so they just all swarm on me. And so they're, they're asking me questions. I'm eating my cheeseburger, and, and they're, they're asking what happened. And, you know, I wasn't really bothered by it too much, but, but um, I didn't tell it the first hour, but it, it turned out that they found out later on that it probably was a, a vagrant that kind of had just died in there or something. We, we didn't kill him. And, and, but, but that night, I hope we didn't. <laughs> well... I did say a couple weeks ago I was a murderer. <laughs> At least Eric Tucker said I was a murderer. But I digress. That night on the news, here's the story. That there was a couple of guys, I was one of them, and we went on an adventure, kind of like a, they use the term, a Huckleberry Finn adventure. And we went down and we were exploring. We came across this body and I'm thinking... I'm yelling at the TV. That is not what happened. My boss said, you are getting down in that pit and you're cleaning it out. And it's like, don't believe everything you hear. That wasn't the truth. There's a lot of untruth out there. We live in a time in a postmodern society where people say that truth is relative, that it's whatever you want it to be. That's why they say two plus two can be uh, you pick a number. I think two plus two equals four, isn't it? Immanuel Kant, who was a, a 17th century or 1700s uh, philosopher, German philosopher, argued against absolute truth. He says no one can know an objective truth. Truth is subjective. In fact, his teachings undermine truth-telling. Postmodernists, they deny the existence of absolute truth. They argue that truth is just a social construct, that there are different truths for different people. That's why when our most recent Supreme Court justice, as she was going through the approval process, was asked the question, what is a woman? She hemmed and hawed, and she finally said, well, I'm not, an, I'm not a biologist. What? We are devolving, certainly, as a society. Postmodernists believe that gender is just a social construct versus a God-created biological fact. Albert Moeller speaks about Postmodernist. He says, there are no true postmodernists in airplanes at 33,000 feet. <laughs> no one wants gravity to be socially constructed. No one wants a postmodern heart surgeon snipping arteries according to personal preference. There's a lot of truth in that. Scripture teaches that truth is not relative, but is rooted in God's word and in his character. John 17, 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he says to the Father, sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In fact, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, 
If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Listen to what John MacArthur says about postmodernists and truth. He says, truth is, is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Even more to the point, truth is a self-expression of God. Truth cannot be adequately explained, recognized, understood, or defined without God as the source. That's why we are people of the truth. God's word is truth. So if Jesus is the truth, he tells us that conversely in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar and that he is the father of lies. So we've got Jesus who's truth. We've got Satan who's the father of lies. And so today we come to the ninth commandment. It's a commandment about truth and speaking truth. Look at chapter 20, verse 16. He says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We've been going through the Ten Commandments. Chapter 19, the nation of Israel comes to the Mount Sinai. There's clouds and thunder and lightning and God speaks from that mountain as we talked about. It was an awesome moment. And then look at verse chapter 20, verse 1. It says, God spoke all these words. God speaks. He spoke out of the mountain. They heard it. And he starts with the indicative. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Grace came before the law. God had saved them. He had saved them out of slavery. That is us. If you're in Christ, you've been saved out of bondage, out of slavery. And then he starts to go into these Ten Commandments. It tells them how to live in communion with him and communion with others. You get the vertical right, the horizontal falls into place. This is not about legalism. This is about now, based on what God has done for you, this is how you now are to live in community with him and in community with others. Imagine what it must have been like to be there in that moment. Like there would have been no pride in anyone's heart as they're hearing God's voice boom from the mountain. In fact, look at chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. I mean, like there's no pride. There's nobody sticking their chest out at God in that moment. I guarantee it. And they, said to, and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And, and as I was reading that this week and praying about it, I was just like, man, I pray we hear these commandments the way they heard those commandments, as God speaking they would have been moved dramatically from the heart. So let me ask and answer a couple questions today. Here's the first question. What is lying? What is lying? Well, it's a violation of the truth. It's a fabrication. It's to misrepresent or deceive. It's to mislead. It's to speak what is false. It's to not speak what is true. We know that this is the condition of mankind ever since Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. In fact, 
Psalm 116.11 says, all mankind are liars. This command, the context for it is really in the court of law. It governs a legal testimony a witness would give in a public trial. But it means so much more than that. See, he says, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. In that day, there was no CSI, no crime scene investigation. There was no DNA evidence. There were no cell phones. There were no cameras up. There was just the testimony of witnesses. And that's why this was such an important command. Because if you were being charged with a capital crime, if there were false witnesses, you would then be stoned to death. And you might have been innocent. So he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Speaking truth was a matter of life and death. God has a pretty strong opinion about lying. In fact, there's so much written in the Bible about lying. Listen to what he says in Proverbs 6. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to, uh, to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination. He intensifies it. So lying is an intentional violation of the truth. Well, second question is, what are ways that we lie? What are ways that we lie? Well, false testimony. We talked about that. In fact, I was reading in my, in my uh, Bible study this week, uh, my personal Bible study. I'm, 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 I've been in 1 Kings. I'm actually now in 2 Kings. But in 1 Kings, Ahab was the king. He was the king of Samaria and, and, and of Israel, the area of Israel. And, and Ahab, King Ahab saw this gardener, this, this land that was next to his palace, it was owned by Naboth. So he went to Naboth and says, I'd like your land. And, and Naboth says, no, this is a, of my family's inheritance and I, I can't give this to you. So Ahab did what any king would do. He went to his bedroom and he had a hissy fit. And, and he just, he, like, he, he turned his face towards the wall. And so his sweet, loving wife, Jezebel, not, came in and says, why are you so sullen? Because Naboth won't give me his, his, his place for my vegetable garden. Aren't you the king? He, so, so what she does is she goes out and she gets, it says, two worthless men to come and to bear false testimony against Naboth. So, so they have a dinner. And, and these two men come and they accuse Naboth of blaspheming God and blaspheming the king. So they stoned him. And then Ahab got his garden. It's a false testimony. God hates that. We know that Jesus was also falsely accused and ultimately was taken to his death. Well, the second is exaggeration. Exaggeration. Now, this is the sin of many uh, preachers, I hate to say it, politicians and salesmen. It's not great to be put in that Grouping. By the way, did you know we had 2,000 people at church this morning? 
had to be the most epic uh, service we've ever had. But, but, but we can, we can over-promise and we can underdeliver. We might say, you know what? I'm going to leave in five minutes. And 15, 20 minutes later, we're still here. I know kids, our kids have probably heard that. Ah, it'll be another five minutes. Okay. Five minutes is relative in your book, obviously, because my watch says it's been 20. All right. To embellish really comes all the way back. It, it first happened all the way back in Genesis. In fact, let's turn there real quick. Genesis chapter 2. The, 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 the first book of the Bible is second chapter, Genesis chapter 2. And we know in Genesis chapter 2, right after God creates man and creates the heavens and the earth and man and woman... He says, I'm going to put you in the midst of the garden to work it. And he gives them a command in verse 16 of chapter 2. And it says, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of knowledge and of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Very clear command. So now we go down to chapter 3 and enter Satan. And we know that Satan is a deceiver. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, Now stop right there. This becomes part of the problem when we start questioning God's word. The minute you start questioning God's word, you are on a slippery slope to relativism, to postmodernism, to making the truth whatever you want it to be. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the, to the serpent, that's right. <laughs> Sometimes people get out ahead of me. Obviously, they've read this part. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the free fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she embellishes embellishes, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Like, why did she have to do that? Why did she have to give more than what was already there? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. What did he just do? Just refuted God's word. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And she's thinking, oh, I'd like to be like God. And then they ate and then we we had the fall. See, we, we, we can lie by embellishing. Sometimes we embellish by declaring that someone or something is much more wonderful or much more successful than they might be. Here's a third way that we lie, through gossip and slander. Through gossip and slander. Maybe talking about people in a way that might damage their reputation with others. Gossip may or may not be true but we just find ourselves yakking about it. Now that would never happen in a church, right? <laughs> Look what Proverbs says. Proverbs 16. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. I love Proverbs 26. It says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. What's he saying there? Like we like having a fire in the winter in our fire pit. And when it gets close to I want to say closing time, but going to bed, like we stop putting logs on the fire so it can burn itself out. And what the Proverbs is reminding us is, is if we keep putting wood on it, it's going to keep flaming up. 
and, and it says, and, and there's, and, and when, where there is a whisper, quarreling, and where there is no whisper, quarreling ceases. Here, here's the point. When someone comes to you with gossip, a great way to respond to them is say, hey, can I quote you on that? No, I'm just telling you. Well, it can't be quoted. Why even say it? Or if someone comes to you and they're complaining about someone, maybe you should say, hey, have you gone to them one-on-one, as it says in Matthew 18? I think also what, what can happen is gossip and slander comes when, when we don't keep a confidence. Now, I'm not supposed to tell you this, Todd, but let me just tell you this. Don't tell me that if you're not supposed to tell me that. Here, here's another one, a flattery. It's a subtle form of deception. You know, maybe saying kind things to a person to their face that you would never say in the, behind their back. In fact, you would say something totally different. Pam and I, when we were in Dallas, there was a, there was a woman that we knew that was like, I mean, she just dripped flattery. And everybody knew it. It was like, like you, you couldn't even take what she said at face value because it's like, you know, at first you're thinking, man, yeah, of course I'm, I'm, I'm that good. And then after a while, it's like, really? It's like, you don't mean that? We just have to be careful. Look at, um, in fact, Psalm 12, 2 uh, says this. It, it, it says something. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Let me say this. We live in a world where social media becomes a form of self-flattery. Because we want it to show what only we want it to show about us. I, I, I'm not saying you should post your worst pictures. But like airbrushing and just like, it, it's like some of the stuff out there is just ridiculous. Compliments and encouragement are fine. But flattery is deceitful. Look what Romans 16 says. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So we have to be careful about flattery. How about ignorance? Ignorance is a form of ignorance can cause us to lie. You know, we... We can jump to conclusions or comment without knowing the facts, acting like we do. We, we can make blanket statements. Boy, Joey must be using steroids. Like, now we know that could not be true, but when we say that, <laughs> actually, Joey's, Joey's pretty ripped. Or, or, she must be having an affair. We have to be careful because we can make statements out of ignorance or, or statements of omission, keeping quiet when we know the truth. Someone might say an untruth about someone. Instead of correcting it, we let it pass. We can slander by silence or we can have complicity by passivity. Jonathan, when, when Saul was saying all these things about David, Jonathan said, no. He has not wronged you. What, is he, what he has done for you has benefited you greatly. 
Here's the last way we can lie. Insinuation. We insinuate certain things. Boy, can you believe it? Kyle was sober last night. What did I just insinuate? Or, or I went to Mary's house and it was clean. <laughs> Listen, there's a lot of ways we can lie. So the question is, why do we lie? Why? Well, we're fallen human beings. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is who we are. Now, we aren't sinners because we lie. We lie because we're sinners. That's our nature. It's our fallen nature. This is why you need Jesus. Your sin has separated you from a holy God. Listen, there's no amount of penance or good deeds or just trying to be a good person that can save you from the penalty of your sin. Only Jesus can save you from the penalty of your sin. We've been saying it every week. Like, like I know now I'm 0 for 9 in keeping the commandments. My guess is as of next week, I'll be 0 for 10. It just drives me to my need for Jesus. Knowing that we've fallen short, knowing that we can't save ourselves, we need Christ because we can't save ourselves. So why do we lie? Let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, pride. Pride. We want people to think better of us. We don't want people to think that we don't know or we don't want them to look down upon us. You know, one of the things we tell our small group leaders or people that when they're doing discipleship, if somebody asks you a tough question and you don't know the answer, don't fake it till you make it. Say, I don't know, but I'd love to find out. And you're going to learn a lot. I, I don't know. What a beautiful thing. In fact, 1 Peter 5 speaks of this. Peter says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Everybody. Toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me ask you. Do you have a prideful streak in you? God opposes that. But he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the high, mighty hand of God. So at the proper time he may exalt you. Would you rather be around somebody that's just really prideful in all their responses or somebody that's humble? I mean it's pretty clear. Most of us would rather be some, around somebody that's got some humility to him. Our friend who's a pastor up in Toronto, Robbie Simons, he says, he says it all the time. Pride is dumb. Forgive me if you got kids in the room. Pride is dumb. It is. Pride is dumb. God opposes it. It gets us nowhere. It's an affront to God. It's one of the reasons we, we, we lie. But here's another reason. Fear of consequences. We, we fear the consequences of the truth. Maybe we were supposed to call someone for work, and for whatever reason, we didn't. And then we're asked about it. We say, you know, I, I called them and left a message, and they didn't answer. You know? Or if you break something and somebody asks you what happened, you go, I don't know. Ask Jimmy. Maybe he knows. Listen, parents, the consequences... For lying should be much greater than the consequences for doing something wrong and being honest about it. Always. We want to make sure we aren't teaching our kids to lie. 
by making the consequences for truth worse than the consequences of the lie. Let me ask you, would you rather have someone be honest with you about what they did or didn't do, or would you rather have them lie to you about it? The reality is you'd rather have them be truthful. So why do we lie? Third, it might be protection, maybe for a loved one. Maybe a loved one has been accused of a sin and we lied to protect them. Is that a good thing to do? Well, if it's a child or a spouse or maybe a family member or a friend, we might be enabling their sin. Here's another reason, advancement, to get ahead. You know, you might hear somebody say, you know, business is tough. This is what it takes these days. My competitors do it. I have to do it. Or I have investors. I can't let them down. And so we justify our sin for gain. So we take our matters in our own hands. We, we start leaning on our own understanding. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it's a, it's a great passage. It just reminds us, lean not on your own understanding. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. Or, or, or Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all other things shall be added unto you. See, lying can destroy your character. And the more you lie, the more you must cover up your lies, the more you must lie to cover up your lies. Do you realize our 37th president learned that in a really hard way? When his campaign committee broke into Watergate to the Democratic office, it was, it was just a little thing. But then they had this massive cover-up. Anybody remember who that was, that president? It was Richard Nixon. And he ended up leaving saying, I'm not a crook. But everybody was calling him a crook. He was covering up when he should have just told the truth. Lying destroys your testimony for Christ. It can destroy relationships with those you lie to. And ultimately, it can destroy your soul. I mean, Acts chapter 5, it's a pretty rough passage. Ananias and Sapphira, they sold a piece of land. And they held back a portion. That was their right, but, but they said they gave it all. And, 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 and Peter said to him, how has Satan put it in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Didn't end well for them. Not a happy ending for that couple. Fact is, we know on the day of judgment, we will give an account for every careless word. Matthew chapter 12 tells us this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. So what is the remedy for lying? What is the remedy for lying? Well, like last week, we want to go back to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a black Bible, Ephesians chapter 4 is on page 919. And Ephesians, once again, is a great book written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. In the first three chapters, Paul gives us all these indicatives of what Christ has done for you, of who he is. That, that he has loved you with a great love, that he's chosen you, that he's redeemed you, he's restored you, that he's given you an inheritance, 
that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God being rich in, in mercy with the great love with which he loved us, he saved us. By grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And then he gets to chapter 4 in verse 1, and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, based on all God has done for you, this is how you ought to live. It's, it almost is a, a beautiful picture of Exodus chapter 20. Like, I've redeemed you, and now this is how you ought to live. And he reminds them that he's provided them with, with, with pastors and elders and leaders to bring them to mature manhood, verse 13. Why, verse 14? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. And then he says this. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into, into him, which is the head of, into Christ. See, as we grow, we speak up and we become truth tellers. In fact, the, literally, that means truthing in love. Speaking truth shows Christ-like character. The fact is, at work, at school, wherever your community is, you're surrounded by moral relativists. But we're called to be the aroma of Christ by speaking truth. If we don't, who will? And then Paul talks about, we talked about last week, putting off that old life. In Christ, we now put off that old, cry, that old life. It's like taking off our old jacket and putting on a new jacket of who we are in Christ. Put off the old, put on the new. Verse 25, first thing he says after talking about putting off the old and putting on the new. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So what's the put off? The put off is lying. The put on is speaking truth. They go hand in hand. We don't just do one and not the other. We put off lying. We put on truth. And notice, Paul assumes that you've put away falsehood. He says, therefore, having put away Falsehood, past tense, put on. That's what he says. Then some of you speak truth to one another. Is that what he says? He says, let each one of you, all of us, speak truth to one another. Clothe yourselves with your new clothes daily. Speak truth to your neighbor with those in your sphere of influence. Listen, we have the most important truth there is. We have the truth about salvation in Jesus Christ. That there is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. We have the truth about Jesus' sinless life, about his sacrificial death on the cross, about his, his resurrection and, and ascension into heaven, that by putting your faith and trust in him, you can have eternal life. Listen, God didn't save you just so you could get your ticket into heaven. God saved you to be his witness to speak truth. There are many people who will never darken the doors of a church. And that's why at the end of every service, I say this, you are loved and sent. I say you are loved. Why? You can put that up. I say, I say you are loved because you are. In Christ, God loves you. 
He, he, he loves you. He, we know that because he sent his son to die on the cross for us. But also you are sent. You are sent to be a truth teller, to be the aroma of Christ, to connect your Sunday worship with your Monday work. That there aren't two different things. That who you are on Sunday is who you are on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And it continues. We know the truth. But you know we commit the sin of omission if we don't speak up. The remedy for lying is truth telling. So that leads us to the last question. What if you're guilty of lying? Well, the reality is you are. You are. We all lie. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I had somebody whose name is going to go unmentioned who thought I should name this message, you lying dogs. Because we are. Nah, we're not. I mean, that's like the Georgia dogs, the bulldogs. But the, the fact is, we, 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 we're liars. We, we lie. And when we recognize our sin, we recognize that we're condemned. And we only have one hope, and that's to look to the cross, where Jesus was condemned in our place. Matthew 26, verse 60 tells us that there were many false witnesses that came forward to testify against Jesus. The religious leaders rejected the truth about who Jesus was, and they called for his crucifixion. Jesus though he was without sin, was condemned as a liar in our place. Think about that. We lie. He was without lies. And yet he took our place so we would not have to be condemned. It's an amazing thing. That's God's, that's God's grace. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the fact is, no matter how bad you've sinned or how much you've lied, God loves you. He loves you. Not only is he a God of judgment, but he's a God of mercy, and he's a God of grace, and he's a God of forgiveness. And he wants to forgive you. But you must come to him and confess your sin. Ask for forgiveness. Ask forgiveness to those you've sinned against. Ask for forgiveness to God. And if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's an amazing thing. But you must turn from your ways and turn to him. Listen, he is a loving father. Just read Luke 15, the prodigal son. When he, when he turned back to the father, the father ran to him. That's what our loving father does to us when we confess. Jesus tells us that there's two rows, roads, there's two paths, John chapter, or, uh, Matthew chapter 7. He says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. There's a path that most people are on. It leads to destruction. It's the path of Satan and deception. But narrow is the path that leads to life. Few will find it. He says, enter by the narrow path. There's only one way to life, and that is by entering the narrow gate the narrow path, the path towards Jesus Christ. Remember, there is salvation in no other name by which you must be saved. You must choose which road to take. 
One road leads to eternal life in heaven with Christ. The other one leads to eternal death separated from God. And if you wait until you die to choose the road, it's too late. The fact is, there's a truth about eternity. And the truth is, Jesus died for your sins in your place as a substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might receive the righteousness of God. So let me encourage you today. Look to Christ. If you sin, look to Christ. If you sin again, look to Christ. Don't run from him, run to him. Look to his life, to his death, to his burial, to his resurrection, and and receive his forgiveness. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And... I know that this may not feel like the most encouraging message, but the reality is is it is. Because we all fall short. But Jesus died in our place. He's given us a way to have eternal life. And when we do sin, we don't have to walk around in shame. But we realize that all we need to do is turn back to him and receive his grace. That's a beautiful thing. We have a loving God, a loving Father. A God who loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place on the cross. Maybe you've never received Christ. This would be a great time to confess your sin. and Say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. I believe you died for me on my, on the, you died my place on the cross. That you were buried and that you raised again on the third day put my faith and my trust in you. And if that's you, I'd, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. We're, we're going we're gonna to sing a song in a minute that's unfamiliar to us. To many of you, maybe. But maybe just let these words be sung over you in this moment. Let them work in your heart. And then as you feel led, join in. Father, thank you for your grace displayed on a criminal's cross. Father, forgive us of our sin. We know that you do when we confess it. Father, I pray for those maybe that are struggling with the shame of their past, the shame of their sin, that they would just take it to you. They would take it to your cross. To your cross. They would receive your grace. And as a result of it, they would experience your joy. And they would have hope of eternal life. Father, I pray for those that don't know you, that they would receive you right now and be saved. Father, it's in Jesus' name I pray.